And we're going through the book of Exodus and we're following the Israelites' story. From their slavery in Egypt through to the Exodus, the exit, the leaving of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the time in the wilderness. And all that God does amongst that nation, all that God does to prove his faithfulness, all that God does to prove his power, all that God does to prove that, that he keeps to his promise. And as we've seen previously, when we come to think about the Israelites and we think about the Old Testament people of God, as the New Testament authors understood it, so we do too, we're really seeing something of the story also of the church. That we read these events, true historical events, but we also read them theologically in understanding what God is doing around the world in his people today, what he's doing in us. So as we give ourselves to aspiring and become the church that he wants us to be, we do well to look at the lessons of the Israelites. We do well to learn from their mistakes. We do well to learn about the God that we love and the God that we worship and his patience and how he deals with a very stubborn and rebellious people and yet he's full of grace and kindness. There's a beautiful picture in the book of Isaiah and it's a prophetic picture of, of how God sees his people, how God sees his church. We read this. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. I want you to think about that picture. This is what Isaiah is seeing. He's seeing as it were the hand of God outstretched and on his hand is a crown, a glorious, beautiful, striking, stunning crown. It glistens, it's captivating, it's in the hand of God. A royal diadem, a crown. He's saying, this is who my people are. This is who you're becoming. So across every generation and every age of God's people, he's, he's working to form and to fashion a people who one day will truly be as stunning as that. Reaches out his hands and says, you're a crown of beauty. You're a picture of glory. You're something breathtaking. It can be challenging to feel like that's how God sees us at times. And, and we often are aware of the shortcomings and the failures of the church. And I think if we're being honest, we don't necessarily always feel like this crown of beauty. And yet our God is not a God who has a stab at something and gives up if it's not quite working. He's faithful to complete and to fulfill all his purposes. And so he's working through every generation for us to become, for the church, for his bride, to one day be this stunning spectacle of his grace, trophies of his grace, to who we are becoming. The work has already started. This moment, as it were, when the church is presented in the hand of God as a sparkling crown, this doesn't happen as a result of a divine click of the fingers. It's not like God just goes, right, let's do it. Transform. God works through a crucible of pain, trial, persecution, suffering to form a 
people like that. Through every age of the church, that's been the case. Through this church and through your lives, God is working to form this beautiful, glorious church through a crucible of suffering, trial, persecution, and challenge. So that you have Paul in Romans 8, he says something amazing. He says, you will be glorified with Christ, provided that you suffer with him. And it's a clause which is easy to miss or to ignore. I want to be glorified with Christ. Am I prepared to suffer with Christ? So that that moment in glory when the church is revealed, there won't be a single one of us there who doesn't have a story of how in some way we also have suffered with Christ. That's been the story of God's people from the beginning. It continues through this present day. It will continue until that moment when we see Jesus Christ return. Let's read Exodus together. So I'm going to begin initially by looking at the first seven verses. We'll go through chapter one together. First thing we're thinking about this, grace for the new generation. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Isaac, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, I do just ask for your help this morning. Help us, Lord Jesus, to hear your words spoken to us. Help us to have a vision for your church, which is so wonderful and glorious. Help us and help everyone here in the room to be those who will persevere to the end. Help us, Lord, to be formed and shaped into the community, to the church that you have us be. Help us not to run away from the trial and the challenge. Help us to embrace what may come on the grounds that we know within us shines the light of Christ, a treasure. Lord, I pray, please, form in us gold that would sparkle and shine to your glory. Amen. So, it begins this passage by telling us about the family of Joseph. Joseph, who was uh, the Pharaoh's right-hand man as he was in Egypt. Joseph, who was used to see uh, remarkable provision during a time of great drought and famine. Joseph, who was a man of great integrity and character. Joseph, who was a man who heard from God in dreams, was very prophetic. God spoke to him. God raised him up from incredible hardship and obscurity, from being falsely imprisoned, accused of crimes he didn't commit, but then raised up and honoured through incredible challenging, humble situation, he gets exalted to a position of unbelievable influence. God uses Joseph to heal his broken family. You might not know the story, but Joseph's brothers sold him to be a slave. 
Joseph's brothers hated him because of the sense of favor that was upon him. Things just went well for Joseph. His dad absolutely adored him. And his brothers were, his brothers were very jealous. And consequently, he said, we've got to kill him, compromise by sending him into slavery. And, and, and Joseph, from utter obscurity, continued to believe in the dreams that, that God had given him. Even in prison, thrown into prison. Can you imagine it? You're thrown into, a, into prison, innocent of the crime. You're shamed. And, and in that place, he'd had dreams that one day God would raise him up to a position of great influence. But in prison, didn't give up his belief and confidence in God's dreams. He's, he's interpreting the dreams of the baker and the wine taster. He, he still believes in the God who interprets dreams and slowly and surely he finds the prophetic vision that God gave him realized as he comes to this position of incredible authority and power. His brothers come back to him and there's this powerful moment of reconciliation and healing. Exodus begins by telling us about this family. The nation of Israel begins as a, with a family. It's important to God. He loves family. He loves community. We are given the names of these sons. 70 people. Very, relatively speaking, it's a very small group. And in the church today, the, the Bible teaches us that we're family. Mums and dads, grandfathers and grandmothers, brothers, sisters, sons and daughters. He's designed us to be a family. And as each of us know from our own families, there's incredible love when you're in a good family and security. There's also great pain often. There can be conflict. The people that you love the most hurt you the most. Family isn't easy by any stretch of the imagination, but we all know we're grateful that we can do life with family. And for those who have had the pain of not having a family, you know that to be a real pain. And by the grace of God, he's given you the church that you might experience and know the true family. That you might be approved and loved and accepted. That you might know that you belong, that you have a seat at the table. That you might know there are people who love you, who want to affirm you, who want your best. It's also going to be people who are going to do your head in. There are going to be people that you're going to fall out with. There are going to be people who you'll struggle to get along with. There will be people who will inspire you. There will be people who you'll look at from Sunday to Sunday and think, oh, I'd just love to be a bit more like them. That's good. There will be people who look at you and think, I'd like to be a little more like them. In, 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 this, in family, we, we, we learn from one another, we challenge, we encourage, we help one another, we irritate one another, we inspire one another. It's family. We can do it really well at times and we can do it really badly at times. There's going to be times when you're going to think, I love my church, I love this family, I'm so grateful to God for this family. And then there are going to be times when you're like, I'm really struggling with church, struggling with my family. God's grace is given to you in those moments to help you persevere. To see the value in persevering. To forgive. Like Joseph modeled forgiveness, reconciliation. There's grace for you to be able to do that too. There's grace for you to be able to apologize where you've offended someone. And there's grace for you to receive an apology when you've been offended. 
family, precious. The answer when you're going through a tough time isn't just to go, well, I give up. I'm going to go through it on my own. Me and God. That's not how it's been designed. You've been given a family. The Israelites begin as a family together, entering Egypt. At this point, what do they come with? They don't actually come with uh, a myriad of stories, of signs and wonders. Not really. This is all to come. They come with a history. They come with a great granddad who really loved God, who received the wonderful promise. Abraham. You old descendants will be like the stars in the sky and the sands and the shore. They came with a promise that God was going to do something through this family. They'd already seen something of it in Joseph. They'd seen something of an extraordinary favor upon this, this guy. But there was also the sense that there's going to be something infinitely bigger and greater that's going to happen too. They came with promises. They came with an expectation. And then we have verse 6. Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. So many chapters of Genesis is dedicated to the life of Joseph. And then we have like this mic drop moment in verse 6, which is just like, and then Joseph died. He died. And all that generation died. I mean, that's an incredibly, there's not much written about this, but we can assume this is devastating. When Joseph dies, it's devastating for, for the family. And then that whole generation dies. You know, you, we all know you can't escape, you can't avoid death. And for all of us, death has been incredibly painful and difficult thing to experience. In this moment when Joseph dies, well, who was Joseph? Joseph had the right hand seat, Pharaoh. We have a guy in power and in authority who loves God with all his heart and who loves God's way of doing things and has influence and the Pharaoh listens to him, the Pharaoh's given him authority and we're able to live in a, in a nation where Joseph's listened to and then he dies. Now what? We're not told that someone took his place from the Israelites next to the Pharaoh. Exodus begins with the death of Joseph. Joshua begins with the death of Moses. Judges begins with the death of Joshua. First Kings begins with the death of David. And for all that, as death takes one of God's greatest servants, we find God's kingdom continues to advance. God's kingdom continues to because he's doing a new thing amongst a new generation. Verse 7, but, and we've got a number of these moments, every time we see that word, but, we're about to be told something of the grace of God, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. We're given this juxtaposition, Joseph died, but, they advanced, they multiplied, they grew, they became strong, they became vast. What's the challenge to us? I know many of you have been in this church for many decades, and I'm loving talking to you and hearing the stories. This church has got lots of fantastic stories, hasn't it? The fact that we're in this unbelievable building, 
Many of you won't know the story of this building. I think you can get it on the website, Steve, am I right? Maybe we'll try and get the story of the building. But this, this church, I mean, it's a building, but it's not just. It's a story of faithfulness, of generosity. It's a story of faith and conviction. This church has had decades of seeing God do great things. And some of you have been through it. I see Fred and Mary at the back. Some of you have been through it. You've seen it. And it would be quite easy for you to go, the grass was greener, the honey was sweeter. Those were the days. And I'm inspired as I see people like Fred and Mary, David Colling, people who I'm getting to know, John and Mary, people who have been around. And, I, and I, there's still so many of you that I don't know yet who I've sat with and I've said, talk to me about the church. And you're here today, blessing what's happening today. A new generation being formed by grace. It can be very easy for sentimentality to anchor you to a bygone era so that you miss what God might be doing today. Joseph died. That whole generation died. It was a glorious generation. But God multiplied them and they grew exceedingly. God's doing a new thing. Has been doing a new thing. Will continue to do a new thing. That doesn't mean that we forget what's happened. Far from it. We're to inspire one another with the stories of where we've been. The stories of God's grace. We look back thankful. We tell the stories of God's former grace and we're thankful. But we embrace the new thing that God's doing today and we're hopeful. I'm hopeful of where he's taking us. This is the scene that is set here in Exodus chapter 1. Now let's read what comes next from verse 8 to 14. Grace for the persecuted. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. All their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Verse 8 begins, a new king arose who did not know Joseph. It's very significant how that's phrased. He didn't know Joseph. It's not just who Joseph was, it's what Joseph represented. A new king arose. He didn't know the stories, or rejected the stories, or chose not to listen to the stories of how this Joseph, this Israelite, came and saved Egypt from disaster. And how he had a God called Yahweh, who he worshipped, and and he didn't bow down to the idols in Egypt. He, he was faithful to his God, and, and there was favor on him. And, and we as a whole nation of Egypt were 
helped by this guy, by the king of Rose, who didn't know Joseph. And suddenly things get really hard for the Israelites. There's a, a book which was written a couple of years ago called Dominion by a guy called Tom Holland. Tom Holland is an agnostic, he's not a Christian. Yet he would say, as far as my values and worldview is concerned, I'm Christian. And, and this book, he's a historian, and what this book does is it goes right back through antiquity and traces how it is modern Western values such as human rights, the dignity of all people, the sanctity of life, all of these things which are precious within uh, the Western values system. He says all of these things have come from where? Christianity. They've come from the teachings of the Apostle Paul and from the Gospels. We, we make no mistake, he's an advocate, not a Christian, make no mistake, these things which we believe to be central to what it means to be a progressive and developed society, the human rights, the dignity of all, these are Christian values. And yet a king has come through now who doesn't know Joseph. We live in a day, in an age where Christianity and Jesus are far from being celebrated for the values that our society and our world says are precious and are important. How can you claim every person has dignity and value unless every person is made in the image of God, unless you go for something timelessly true? The secularization of our nation has sought to forget its Christian past. Has sought to forget the one who touched the leather, the one who dignified the prostitute, the one who in his dying moments turned to a, a thief next to him and showed him compassion and gave him the future. King Aruz arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And yet, they multiplied. And they got stronger. And the people were oppressed. And persecuted. And they were crying. And they were wailing. And it was brutal. And it's hard for us to imagine it. When God spoke to Abraham and said, Your descendants are going to be like that. Stars on the sky, sands on the shore. It's such a happy vision. Such a lovely, happy vision for a man who is childless to say, your kids are going to be so vast and it is in the context of oppression and persecution and hardship that that was beginning to be realized. I, I wonder if in that moment Abraham had seen quite how it was going to happen. Let me ask you this question. Do you want to see the church in this nation multiply and grow exceedingly strong? You know, I, so I was thinking obviously about that question personally. Tim, do you want to see the church in this nation multiplying and growing exceedingly strong? It's still relatively easy to be a Christian today in this nation. Relatively, it's harder today than it maybe was. I went onto the Open Doors website this week. Open Doors 
is a wonderful organization that helps you to pray for the persecuted church around the world. Christians in situations where persecution is a daily reality. And I'm just going to read you some statistics which I took from the homepage of their website. 4,472 churches and Christian buildings were attacked last year. 340 million Christians are persecuted around the world for their faith. 4,761 Christians were murdered for their faith last year. And that's only those that were recorded. And it is in those nations that the church is getting stronger and multiplying. It's in those nations where Christianity is healthy. It's in those nations where Christianity looks like what it looks like in the New Testament. And so increasingly, if you want to know what does a healthy church look like, what does healthy Christianity look like, don't look to the West, you've got to look East. Don't look to the first world, you need to look to the third world. So let me ask you again, do you want to see the church in this nation multiply and grow stronger? And are you willing to embrace that when it means for you and for me things are likely to get much, much harder. Especially if we continue to be a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. Now, we can exist quite comfortably and happily as the heat increases on the church if we throw this book out the window. But if we're going to open the pages of this book and teach it, and speak it, and not get tipex and just tipex over the difficult verses. But if we are going to say we are a Bible-believing church, we are committed to the Word of God, we hold the Word of God over everything, and we die by the Word of God, then increasingly it's going to be very difficult for us. And I pray and hope that we would multiply and grow strong as a result. And we should pray for the persecuted church around the world today. Many gathering today not knowing if their services will suddenly be invaded by soldiers. I know our churches in India, we've seen that happen. Persecution is a real thing faced by our brothers and sisters around the world. What gives them the perseverance to keep going? This is what it looks like. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 11. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. That's the treasure. So that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Since death is at work in us, but life in you. We're persecuted, we're oppressed. In Paul's case, stoned, flogged, beaten, shipwrecked. And yet there's treasure in these jars of clay. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, we are carrying within us 
something which is infinitely more valuable than this world around me, than the material world around me, to truly say there's a treasure in me which is so much greater than any treasure in this world, so that I'm willing to lose my earthly possessions and even my life to protect the, the, the glorious treasure that's within me. That's, that was the resolve of Paul. That's the result of those 4,000 dollars who gave their lives last year. It's a very challenging Christianity for you and I. It just is very challenging. Not least because of the popularity of the prosperity gospel, which says that God's agenda in your life is to make your life comfortable, is to give you an abundance, is to make is for you to acquire stuff. That's a, I would say that's a, ultimately is a demonic message. Now, they're in exodus, they're in slavery, they're being oppressed, they're being persecuted. What does God think about all of this? He's multiplying them. He's not going, oh, I love that my people are being persecuted. No, he says, I've heard their cries. I've seen them. Pain. There's a grieving. There's a grace that comes. This, this goodness of God that comes to bring strength to them. <clears throat> Thirdly and finally, there's grace for the courageous. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. If it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. God dealt, with, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born of the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. There's grace for the courageous. Here's a question for you. What's the name of this Pharaoh? What's the name of this king, this Pharaoh here? Anyone know it? You don't know it. No one knows the name. <laughs> Trick question. What's the he, we don't get his name? Whose names do we get? We get Shipra's name and we get Pua's name. That, you know, and we start with all of these names. Where identity and names are so important, the fact that we don't get told the name of the Pharaoh is significant. Historians would say it's a bit annoying because then we can place the Israelites to a particular moment in history. We're not given the Pharaoh's name, we don't need to. But God wants us to know the name of the midwives. He wants us to know the name of these courageous women. He wants us to know the names of these women who feared God more than they feared Pharaoh and feared their own death. He wants us to know about these courageous ones who stood against the oppression of a wicked government and would not compromise their faith, their convictions. They were bold. 
They had grace. God favoured them. We can think, in my life's account, I've got to be a bit like Moses, or a bit like Aaron. Our world would say, be the king. Isn't it great that Jesus, that God in his word, highlights these new lives? I read this brilliant quote from Christina Denham yesterday. She leads a wonderful mission helping addicts over in America. She said this, in God's global mission, the role of extraordinary people doing exceptional things is probably far smaller than we imagine. And the role of ordinary people doing everyday things is certainly far greater than we imagine. God wants you to know the midwife's names. Because each of us are able to make courageous decisions to honour God, to obey God. And it's on the basis of these decisions, these everyday decisions, these everyday moments, that you will get, even this week, courageous decisions, increasingly courageous to just be a Christian. And it's on the basis of this that God can move mountains. And it's on the basis of this that Moses was saved. And it's on the basis of this that the Israelites were led out of Egypt. It was on the basis of this that God led them into their salvation. It's on the basis of the courage and the bravery of these women who feared God first. Through the trial, through the struggle, through the oppression, God leads his people. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. This is grace that brought me safe thus far. Grace will lead me. That's the story of God's people. One man come up. Let's stand. There are so many unforeseen things, aren't there, in our world around us. One thing that, that we do know is that the struggle and the fight gets increasingly more intense before Jesus returns. And the challenge for each of us to stand firm and to keep following and trusting our God it will become greater. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of these midwives who were courageous. We thank you for this passage of scripture. We thank you that even in persecution and oppression, through that crucible, you're forming gold in your people, strengthening them and multiplying them. And Lord Jesus, we ask for us as a church, would you form us, would your grace form us and shape us as we long to be the people that you have in mind for us to be. And Lord, even now we think.